Greetings from Latter-day Media, presenting our dear friend and epic historian on Joseph Smith and Church History, Brother K. Godfrey. This Come Follow Me video series is a bonus resource to enhance your appreciation of the Prophet Joseph Smith with little-known facts and research about American and Church history. We would appreciate you clicking the like button and sharing each video so we can continue bringing you more fascinating content. Episode 5, Doctrine and Covenants 6-9, through 9, The Early Years. And now, Kay Godfrey. Welcome. It's good to be with you again. This will be our fifth podcast, and we're titling this particular podcast, The Early Years. And again, just as a reminder, this is supplemental or additional material to aid in your studies of the Doctrine and Covenants this year. In fact, the material we'll be discussing today and for the next three podcasts falls primarily into the first two or three um, lessons that are, that are suggested that you follow with regards to Come Follow Me in the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, today's podcast, as I mentioned, will be an overview kind of an abbreviated overview of the life of the Prophet Joseph Smith from the time that they left Norwich, Vermont in 1816 until they would arrive in uh, in Palmyra and organize uh, eventually the church in 1830. So we've got a 14-year period of time we're going to go through. But three additional podcasts I will do after this one concludes will cover a five-year period of time of 1825 through 1830. And these particular podcasts will be much more comprehensive and detailed. But today, we are going to follow the footsteps of Joseph. They say to know a man is to have walked in his shoes. So join with me now as we follow the footsteps of Joseph. We last left the Smith family in Norwich, Vermont. You remember from our previous podcast, um, the experiences that they had there, they suffered three uh, successive years of crop failure due in part to issues surrounding the eruption of Mount Tambora. The family was heavily in debt at this particular time and, quote, warned out of town. Now, what is warned out of town? Uh, this is a, a widespread method used uh, by uh, colonial America, uh, those good folks in the, in the northeast part of the, the country, to pressure or force outsiders to settle elsewhere as opposed to their community, especially if they were deemed by someone to be um, undesirable. So what they would do is they would uh, send a notice or an order by way of select men from the town to the town constable, and the constable would then tell the individual that, that those who lived here in a long-term basis would like them to leave. Now, some did, some did not. In the case of the Smiths, they would be leaving. It's kind of an interesting concept. Okay, the family suffered three successive years of crop failure. You remember we discussed this in the podcast earlier, due in part primarily to issues involving the eruption of Mount Tambora, and the family, heavily in debt, was warned out of town. Now, I need to explain what warned out of town is. This was a widespread method in the United States for established New England communities to pressure, to coerce, to force people to leave and, and uh, settle elsewhere if they were felt that the individual or his family was undesirable. And so what would happen 
is they would, uh, the selectmen of the town would send a notice to the constable, and then the constable would contact the individuals who had just moved in, and they would be told that they have been, they have been thought to be undesirable, and they should move on, settle perhaps elsewhere, and the Smiths fell into this category. Now, Joseph Smith Sr. left seeking someone else for the family to, uh, to, to live. He, he hired a man named Caleb Howard, and they, uh, the two of them left for New York in search of a, a new home for the family. After uh, Joseph Smith Sr. left, there were those who said that Joseph, who had thought he had erased or paid off his debts, said that, uh, that he had defrauded them. And they claimed that, uh, that $150 was still owed them. And so with Joseph Sr. gone, Lucy, Lucy was the one who had to um, uh, raise this $150. Now, once Joseph Sr. had arrived in, in Palmyra, New York, he sent Mr. Caleb Howard back to get Lucy and the family and bring them there. Now, this was a very difficult time for the family. Um, Mr. Howard was a very abusive man. He beat the children. At times, he made poor Joseph, who was still on crutches at this time, uh, walk instead of instead of be able to ride. Uh, he spent the money that Joseph Sr. had given him on liquor and things, and one time he attempted to steal the horses and the wagons. Well, he was caught by Lucy and dismissed. And so poor Lucy was uh, relegated to, uh, to taking the family on to meet Joseph Sr. in Palmyra. She, she took, trudged with the family some 300 miles by herself to meet Joseph. Another somewhat tragic event took place um, relative to this to the family moving and preparing to move to Palmyra. Lydia Gates Mack, this is Lucy's mother, was staying with the family at the time, and it was her desire to go with the family to Palmyra. Well, her wagon overturned en route and she was injured. She was forced to stay in Royalton, Vermont with her son, Daniel Mack, and she'll die two years later and never have the opportunity to have seen her, her daughter Lucy again. After joining Father Smith, the family lived in the village of Palmyra for, for two years until 1818. There's a couple of sites that have been identified in town, perhaps, where they lived. And during the time that they were living in town, they were able to acquire 100 acres of land outside of town, and 30 acres of that land was cleared and a cabin was built. Much of the responsibility for clearing the land was given to the two older children, Alvin and Hiram. Now, this property kind of straddled two townships, the township of Palmyra and the township of Manchester. The, uh, the border ran just south of this cabin site. The large frame home that would be eventually be built by Alvin for the family was actually on the Manchester side, while the cabin was on the Palmyra side. In 1982, the church had the cabin restored on the same site with a build as, as original as, as possible, and that's what you would tour or see today. That marker, that project marker, is no longer visible at the, at the site. Well, during the period of 1818 through 1820, there was a great religious revival. Many churches were debating the doctrines of men. Great pressure was brought to bear on all to become part of some church. 
Well, during this time, Joseph Sr., who had previously received two prophetic dreams while in New England relative to his family and their future, now received five more during this period of time, uh, this period of, of revival uh, while in Palmyra. Young Joseph was also searching for his definition of truth. And one evening, while reading from Firelight, truth found him as he pondered the message found in James 1, 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. And on that beautiful spring morning in 1820, truth was going to be revealed to this young boy. Joseph took his questions to the family's special place, the sacred grove. Now, the sacred grove is truly an outdoor temple. It is where one would go in search of answers. In 1905, when Joseph F. Smith was on his return trip from dedicating the Joseph Smith Birthplace Memorial in Sharon, Vermont, he stopped in Harmony, Pennsylvania, down near the Susquehanna, to see that particular historical site, and also in Palmyra, New York, to view this particular site. And while in the company of a small group of people in the grove, President Smith felt inspired to point out the location where he said the father and son appeared to the boy Joseph. Later, in 1907, that would be two years later, the church commissioned George Edward Anderson to take pictures of church-related historical sites. And the photographer, Mr. Anderson, was able to have a person who was with President Smith two years previous to show him the location of that sacred spot, and a picture was taken. And you can see the little man in the picture is where that uh, particular spot is assumed to have taken place. And the picture uh, just below Sacred Grove 1907 shows in the distance the barn, the Smith barn there. So it gives you some kind of trajectory as to where this site might have been. And today it certainly would have been in the newer growth, the front of the Sacred Grove. You know, there's a few trees that still stand today as silent witnesses to the love that our Heavenly Father has for His children. If only they could talk. Now, these USDA markers that could be seen at the base of some of the older trees in the grove uh, no longer exist today. In this loft, the boy Joseph, age 17, was visited three times by the angel Moroni, and again a fourth time the following day while in the fields working. He was given detailed instructions and insight. He was shown the location of the Book of Mormon in the Hill Cumorah. The loft is kind of divided with a back room for the sisters and a little bit of a larger room for all of the boys to sleep in. And then there was a birthing room off of the downstairs kitchen where uh, mom and dad would sleep and also where baby Lucy would be born. The Hill Camora is a drumlin. A drumlin is a glacial-formed hill all through New York as the glaciers would recede. These cigar-shaped hills, long cigar-shaped hills, were created. Um, Joseph Smith, the drumlin that Joseph Smith would eventually visit, our hill Camorra, is one of the taller, larger drumlins in the entire area. 
Uh, the hill was wooded at the time of the prophet. The top was covered with beech, maple, bass, and whitewoods. However, the northern end, the northern end, uh, where he would receive the plates, was was a little bit bare. Not as many trees were there at that time. The angel Moroni stands today atop this hill as a tribute to the restoration of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, while Joseph awaited the opportunity to take possession of the plates, Lucy was born, the last of her nine nine children. Uh, Lucy named after her mother, obviously. Uh, the family was now prepared to move into a large framed house just a block or so down the street that Alvin and Hiram had built. Unfortunately, Alvin would not make the trip. Alvin died November 19, 1823 from a misdiagnosed stomach ailment and was administered the wrong medication. Now, I'm going to take a moment and read to you from uh, the uh, chapter 19 of Lucy Max Smith's book, The History of Joseph Smith, about this incident. I'm a, a true admirer uh, of, of Alvin. He was a great individual, a tremendous example to the prophet Joseph Smith. So I'd like to read you just a little bit about what took place. On the 15th of November, 1823, about 10 o'clock in the morning, Alvin was taken very sick with bilious colic, uh, something akin to gallstones today. He came to the house in much distress and requested Father to go immediately for a physician. He accordingly went, obtaining one by the name of Greenwood, who on arrival immediately administered to the patient a heavy dose of calomel. Now, calomel is mercury chloride. It's a dense white substance that is used to induce vomiting. This dose of calomel, however, this thick dose, became lodged in his stomach, and all the medicine afterward, freely administered by four very skilled physicians, could not remove it. Alvin told them that the calomel was still lodged in the same place and that it was going to take his life. On coming to this conclusion, he called Hiram, who was 23 years old at the time, to his side and said, Hiram, I must die. Now I want to say a few things which I wish to have you remember. I have done all I could to make our dear parents comfortable. I want you to go on and finish the house and take care of them in their old age, and do not any more let them work hard as they are now in old age. He then called Sophronia, age 20, to his side, and he said to her, Sophronia, you must be a good girl and do all you can for father and mother. Never forsake them. They have worked hard and they are now getting old. Be kind to them and remember what they have done for us. In the latter part of the fourth night, he called for all the children to come to his side. Samuel, age 14, William, age 12, Catherine, age 10, and Don Carlos, age 7. And he exhorted them separately in the same manner. But when it came to Joseph, who was 17 years old at the time, he said, I am now going to die. The distress which I suffer and the feelings that I have tell me that my time is very short. I want you to be a good boy and do everything that lies in your power to obtain the record. Be faithful in receiving instruction and in keeping every commandment that is given you. Your brother Alvin must leave you, but remember the example which he has set for you. He then asked me, 
this is his mother Lucy, to take my daughter Lucy up and bring her to him. She was two years old at the time. He was always very fond of her and was in the habit of taking her up and caressing her, which naturally formed a very strong attachment on her part for him. We took her to him, and when she got within reach of him, she sprang from my arms and caught him around the neck and kissed him again and again. Lucy said he, you must be the very best girl in the world and take care of mother. You can't have your Alvin any more. Alvin is going away. He must leave little Lucy. We took hold of her to take her away, but she clinged to him with such a strong grasp that it was with some difficulty we succeeded in disengaging her hands. As I turned with the child in my arms to leave him, he said, Father and mother, brothers and sisters, farewell. I can now breathe out my life as calmly as a clock. Saying this, he immediately closed his eyes in death. Alvin was 24 years old, dying November 19, 1823. Later, while in vision in the Kirtland Temple, Joseph saw Alvin in the celestial kingdom with his father. Of Alvin, Joseph said, a no more nobler man can be found than Alvin. Over time, nine different families have lived in the frame home built by Alvin. After the church purchased it, the home was renovated and stripped down. Original timber was uncovered and can now be seen throughout the home. And I want to pause here for just a second and just kind of remind you that our next three podcasts will deal with the years of 1825 to 1830, and it would pick up about at this point in time. So back to our story. With the persecution of Joseph continuing and the family in need of funds, Joseph and his father took employment with an acquaintance, a Mr. Josiah Stoll from Colesville, the New York area. Mr. Stoll and a Mr. Joseph Knight were in Palmyra seeking provisions when they heard of Joseph's heavenly encounters. Interested in what was being said, Mr. Stoll went and hired Joseph and his father to look for lost Spanish treasure in the Appalachian Mountains above Harmony, Pennsylvania. Joseph would be paid $14 per month, and the family desperately needed these funds. While working, he stayed with the Hale family of Harmony, Pennsylvania. Here, Joseph would meet Emma Hale. Joseph would be blessed to find his treasure, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Although Joseph's employment lasted just one month, he picked up the somewhat derogatory term of digger. Many false and vicious lies were spread and perpetuated about the prophet at this time. This sign was put up by the state of New York professing that Joseph had found plates used in the Mormon Bible in this area. Well, this, sound, this, this sign and, and the area they're referring to is Afton, New York. <laughs> Afton is 160 miles from the Hill Cumorah. This was a difficult time for the Smith family as well. In the fall of 1826, they were defrauded out of the deed of their home. They were allowed to stay for a while, but the home was no longer theirs. Joseph and Emma were married January 18, 1827, in South Bainbridge, New York, which today is Afton. Isaac Hale was very much opposed to the marriage of his daughter to the renegade Joe Smith. 
This does not stop, however, Joseph and Emma. They eloped to Afton to be married, and the marriage ceremony was performed by Squire Tarbell. Now, this particular sign, and have to read it closely, commemorates the site of the marriage of Joseph and, and Emma. But the question I might ask is, who is Emily Hale? After their marriage, Joseph and Emma would return to Manchester to live. By the way, this sign has been since removed and corrected to say Emma Hale instead of Emily. During the summer of 1827, Joseph was employed to work in the fields of a family friend, Martin Harris. Mr. Harris learned of Joseph's spiritual experiences and was eager to assist in any way that he possibly could. In the early morning hours of September the 22nd, 1827, Joseph and Emma quietly stole away to the Hill Camorra. The time had arrived for Joseph to receive the plates. Over the months that followed, the plates would be secured and hid from unwanted eyes. The plates were six inches wide, eight inches tall, and six inches thick. Three rings on the inner binder held them together. If they were solid gold, they would have weighed over 200 pounds. The gold being soft needed to have a substance added, perhaps alloyed with copper, so they could retain their shape. Eight carat gold would have weighed approximately 100 pounds. In the winter of 1827, to escape persecution again in the Manchester Palmyra area, Joseph and Emma went to live back in Harmony, Pennsylvania, which, by the way, today is Oakland, Pennsylvania. They lived in a home built by Jesse. That would be one of Emma's brothers who had moved west. The cabin site is not far from where Emma's parents, Isaac and Elizabeth, lived. Father Hale had tempered his feelings somewhat about Joseph, and Martin Harris would soon join Joseph in Harmony, Pennsylvania, and the work of translation would begin. While living in Harmony, Pennsylvania, Joseph would receive 15 revelations that eventually comprised sections 3 through 13 and 24 through 27 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And you can see the restored Smith home that's now there. Much of my research was done when there was nothing but what's in the small square just a placard showing the site. On June 15, 1828, tragedy struck the Smith home. Alvin Smith, the first child of Joseph and Emma, died at birth. At about the same time, Martin Harris lost the first 116 pages translated from the Book of Lehi. These events were the cause of much anguish for the prophet Joseph. He had offended God, and a season of repentance was now required. Nearly a year later, in an answer to prayer, Oliver Cowdery arrived. Oliver was a friend of Joseph Smith Sr. and a teacher in the Palmyra School District. He had heard of the events surrounding Joseph Smith, and he had received a personal testimony of their truthfulness. He came to Joseph and Parmeny, Pennsylvania, seeking an opportunity to render assistance, and from his hand nearly all of the translation of the Book of Mormon would be penned. As Oliver and Joseph continued the translation, they became concerned about the subject of baptism. 
This is mentioned, of course, numerous times in the Book of Mormon. So retiring to the nearby banks of the Susquehanna River, they knelt in prayer. And while we were thus employed, praying and calling on the Lord, a messenger from heaven descended in a cloud of light. John the Baptist laid his hands on the head of Oliver and Joseph and conferred upon them the Aaronic priesthood. Joseph then baptized Oliver, after which Oliver baptized Joseph. After the baptisms, Joseph laid his hands on Oliver and ordained him to the Aaronic priesthood, and Oliver likewise did the same to Joseph. Thus the power to baptize had been restored to the earth. Now, ten days later, the first convert baptism took place. That would be Samuel Smith, Joseph's younger brother. Samuel came down to Harmony to visit Joseph and see if he could help in any way. Samuel became the first great missionary of the church and was instrumental in the conversion of the John Young family, including Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, and the Protestant minister John P. Green, and many, many others all from one well-placed Book of Mormon. And we'll talk about that story next time we meet. John the Baptist told Joseph that in the near future, the power of laying on of the hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost would be given them. Now, this event would happen as the prophet and Oliver were escaping from enemies in Colesville. They were ordained to the apostleship by Peter, James, and John. In June of 1829, with persecution now swirling around them in the Harmony, Pennsylvania area, the Smiths and Oliver received an invitation to move to the Peter and Mary Whitmer farm in Fayette, New York. The invitation came by way of David Whitmer, a friend of Oliver Cowdery's. Oliver had written to David on occasion telling him what was going on, and David, wanting to invite his friend out of harm's way, approached his father about having guests. David's father said to David that he needed to attend to some pressing farm chores first before going to Harmony and bringing his friends back. The miracle surrounding the completion of these labors involved three unknown strangers who rendered the assistance necessary, enabling David to travel to Harmony to move his friends to Fayette. Joseph returned the plates to the angel Moroni's care, accepted the invitation, and left for Fayette. At the Whitmer cabin, Joseph received 20 revelations, sections 14 through 21 and 28 through 40. Now, the story of Norman White is of interest to Latter-day Saints. The restoration of the Whitmer home was accomplished with original wood that dated 1830. Most of this wood was acquired from Norman White's barn. Norman, a Fayette residence, wanted to knock his barn down one day, and so he got a bulldozer and tried to do it. He wasn't very successful because he realized what he thought was simple siding had an interior wall of logs. He heard the church was wanting old logs, and so he donated his barn logs, which, interestingly enough, carbon dated to 1830. In 1996, he joined the church due to this experience and a special witness that he received in the translation room of the Fayette cabin. Norman now became the Mormon. He received the Aaronic priesthood and was satisfied with his personal progress until the church constructed the Palmyra Temple. In 
He didn't want the temple to be closed to him. He was ordained an elder in the Whitmer cabin and was the first live endowment performed in the Palmyra temple, as well as the first person to be sealed to his deceased parents. Upon arriving at the Whitmer farm, the angel Moroni restored the plates to Joseph in the garden. Sister Whitmer also had an opportunity to see the golden plates. Now, this extraordinary event took place near the barn. She was a very diligent, uncomplaining woman who suffered quietly at the expense of those that she housed and cared for. As a tribute, she was given a visual witness by the angel Moroni of the golden plates to help strengthen her. And we'll talk about that story in depth next time we meet, too. In June of 1829, Oliver, Martin, and David asked if they could be the chosen three witnesses of the Book of Mormon. They had been reading in the Book of Mormon in Second Nephi chapter 27, verse 12, which says, and I quote, Three witnesses shall behold it. They knew of Joseph's revelation in March of that same year when Joseph said, and I quote, The testimony of three of my servants, whom I shall call and ordain, unto whom I will show these things, and they shall go forth with my words that are given through you. Well, in David's, David Whitmer's diary, he states that this important fulfillment of Scripture took place 40 rods, or 660 feet, east of the cabin. It's interesting to note that Oliver Cowdery was excommunicated in 1839 due to disloyalty. He later rejoined the church. Martin Harris was excommunicated in 1837 due to pride and disloyalty. He later rejoined the church. David Whitmer was excommunicated in 1838 due to disloyalty. However, he never did rejoin the church. But despite these three individuals' problems, they never denied the witness that they received that June day in 1829. Later in July of 1830, eight more individuals were permitted to see the plates at the hands of Joseph. Let's talk about each of them for just a second. Christian Whitmer, he remained faithful. Jacob Whitmer, he apostatized and never returned. Peter Whitmer remained faithful. John Whitmer was excommunicated and never returned to the church. Hiram Page, who married a Whitmer daughter, was excommunicated for false revelations, and he never returned to the church. Joseph Smith Sr. remained faithful. Hiram Smith remained faithful. Samuel H. Smith remained faithful. All eight of these individuals, however, remained true to the things which they witnessed, never denying the things which they were shown. On March 6, 1830, under lock and key, the Book of Mormon was published. Martin Harris mortgaged 240 acres of his farm in Palmyra to raise the printing costs of $3,000. Now, the firm of E.G. Grandin of Palmyra would print the first 5,000 copies of the Book of Mormon. Now, the first edition of the Book of Mormon sold at that day for $1.25. That was about three days' wages. Today, there's probably less than 500 original copies that are known to be in existence. With the Book of Mormon printed, Joseph took the legal steps now to organize the new religion. On April 6, 1830, at the Whitmer Cabin in Fayette, New York, six men would sign the new religion charter. 
Joseph Smith, Samuel Smith, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, Hiram Smith, and Peter Whitmer, Jr. All had been baptized earlier, but were rebaptized now in the Church of Christ. The first official baptisms of the new church occurred in June of 1830. On the shores of beautiful Seneca Lake, about five miles from the Whitmer home in Fayette, among those baptized at this time and to the great joy of Joseph was his father and mother. Others were Martin Harris and childhood friend Oren Porter Rockwell. On June the 9th, 1830, the first conference of the church would be held. There were 27 members. Today, the population of the church exceeds 15 million. The Lord poured out upon us the spirit of deep sleep, and the world slumbered. Then, in a time of lost thought and forgotten seasons, a new awakening occurred. Something wonderful was about to happen. Near the humble log cabin where Moroni once stood, stands a majestic temple where God now resides. What greater tribute to the man and his accomplishments than to have it be called holy ground? Truly, it can be said, Joseph Smith, the prophet and seer of the Lord, has done more save Jesus only for the salvation of men in this world. This is my message to you today, is to know him, is to love him, and to love him is to follow in his footsteps. Now again, a reminder that our next three podcasts will delve into the years of 1825 and 1830 with great detail. And we'll discuss some of these stories and some of these very, very unique things that happened in what I term and call the misunderstood years of Joseph. Thank you for listening today and for sharing this ComeFollowMe2021.com website. To contact Kay, email him at footstepsofjoseph at gmail.com. And coming soon are six hours of DVDs following the footsteps of Joseph. We appreciate you, our dear listening friends.